enchanting melodies. Welcome to a world of soothing dreams. Welcome to Bibbing's Bedtime Stories. The Prussian Officer by D. H. Lawrence. England, 1914. One. They had marched more than 30 kilometers since dawn along the white, hot road where occasional thickets of trees threw a moment of shade, then out into the glare again. On either hand, the valley, wide and shallow, glittered with heat, dark green patches of rye, pale young corn, Fallow and meadow and black pine woods spread in a dull, hot diagram under a glistening sky. But right in front, the mountains ranged across, pale blue and very still, snow gleaming gently out of the deep atmosphere. And towards the mountains... On and on, the regiment marched between the rye fields and the meadows, between the scraggy fruit trees set regularly on either side the high road. The burnished, dark green rye threw off a suffocating heat. The mountains drew gradually nearer and more distinct. While the feet of the soldiers grew hotter, Sweat ran through their hair under their helmets, and their knapsacks could burn no more in contact with their shoulders, but seemed instead to give off a cold, prickly sensation. He walked on and on in silence, staring at the mountains ahead that rose sheer out of the land, and stood fold behind fold, half earth, half heaven, the heaven, the barrier with slits of soft snow in the pale, bluish peaks. He could now walk almost without pain. At the start, he had determined not to limp. It had made him sick to take the first steps, and what were they after all but bruises? He had looked at them as he was getting up, deep bruises on the backs of his thighs. And since he had made his first step in the morning, he had been conscious of them. Till now he had a tight, hot place in his chest with suppressing the pain and holding himself in. There seemed no air when he breathed, but he walked almost lightly. The captain's hand had trembled at taking his coffee at dawn. His orderly saw it again, and he saw the fine figure of the captain wheeling on horseback at the farmhouse ahead a handsome figure in pale blue uniform with facings of scarlet and the metal gleaming on the black helmet and the sword scabbard and dark streaks of sweat coming on the silky bay horse. The orderly felt he was connected with that figure moving so suddenly on horseback. 
He followed it like a shadow, mute and inevitable and damned by it. And the officer was always aware of the tramp of the company behind, the march of his orderly among the men. The captain was a tall man of about 40, gray at the temples, he had a handsome, finely knit figure and was one of the best horsemen in the West. His orderly, having to rub him down, admired the amazing riding muscles of his loins. For the rest, the orderly scarcely noticed the officer any more than he noticed himself. It was rarely he saw his master's face. He did not look at it. The captain had reddish-brown, stiff hair that he wore short upon his skull. His mustache was also cut short and bristly over a full, brutal mouth. His face was rather rugged, the cheeks thin. Perhaps the man was the more handsome for the deep lines in his face, the irritable tension of his brow, which gave him the look of a man who fights with life. His fair eyebrows stood bushy over light blue eyes that were always flashing with cold fire. He was a Prussian aristocrat, haughty and overbearing, but his mother had been a Polish countess. Having made too many gambling debts when he was young, he had ruined his prospects in the army and remained an infantry captain. He had never married. His position did not allow of it, and no woman had ever moved him to it. His time he spent riding. Occasionally he rode one of his own horses at the races, and at the officers' club. Now and then he took himself a mistress. But after such an event, he returned to duty with his brow still more tense, his eyes still more hostile and irritable. With the men, however, he was merely impersonal, though a devil when roused, so that, on the whole, they feared him, but had no great aversion from him. They accepted him as the inevitable. To his orderly, he was at first cold and just and indifferent. He did not fuss over trifles, so that his servant knew practically nothing about him except just what orders he would give and how he wanted them obeyed. That was quite simple. There was something altogether warm and young about him. He had firmly marked eyebrows over dark, expressionless eyes that seemed never to have thought, only to have received life direct through his senses and acted straight from instinct. Gradually, the officer had become aware of his servant's young, vigorous, unconscious presence about him. 
He could not get away from the sense of the youth's person while he was in attendance. It was like a warm flame upon the older man's tense, rigid body that had become almost unliving, fixed. There was something so free and self-contained about him and something in the young fellow's movement that made the officer aware of him, and this irritated the Prussian. He did not choose to be touched into life by his servant. He now very rarely looked direct at his orderly, but kept his face averted, as if to avoid seeing him. And yet, as the young soldier moved unthinking about the apartment, the elder watched him and would notice the movement of his strong young shoulders under the blue cloth, the bend of his neck. And it irritated him to see the soldier's young, brown, shapely peasant's hand grasp the loaf or the wine bottle sent a flash of hate or of anger through the elder man's blood. It was not that the youth was clumsy. It was rather the blind, instinctive sureness of movement of an unhampered young animal that irritated the officer to such a degree. Once, when a bottle of wine had gone over and the red gushed out onto the tablecloth, the officer had started up with an oath and his eyes, bluey like fire, had held those of the confused youth for a moment. It was a shock for the young soldier. He felt something sink deeper deeper into his soul, where nothing had ever gone before. It left him rather blank and wondering. Some of his natural completeness in himself was gone. A little uneasiness took its place. And from that time, an undiscovered feeling had held between the two men. Henceforth, the orderly was afraid of really meeting his master. His subconsciousness remembered those steely blue eyes and the harsh brows and did not intend to meet them again. So he always stared past his master and avoided him. Also, in a little anxiety, he waited for the three months to have gone when his time would be up. He began to feel a constraint in the captain's presence, and the soldier even more than the officer wanted to be left alone in his neutrality as a servant. He had served the captain for more than a year and knew his duty. This he performed easily, as if it were natural to him. The officer and his commands he took for granted, as he took the sun and the rain, and he served as a matter of course. It did not implicate him personally. But now, if you were going to be forced into a personal interchange with his master, 
He would be like a wild thing caught. He felt he must get away. But the influence of the young soldier's being had penetrated through the officer's stiffened discipline and perturbed the man in him. He, however, was a gentleman with long, fine hands and cultivated movements and was not going to allow such a thing as the stirring of his innate self. He was a man of passionate temper who had always kept himself suppressed. Occasionally, there had been a duel, an outburst before the soldiers. He knew himself to be always on the point of breaking out but he kept himself hard to the idea of the service. Whereas the young soldier seemed to live out his warm, full nature, to give it off in his very movements, which had a certain zest, such as wild animals have in free movement. And this irritated the officer more and more. In spite of himself, the captain could not regain his neutrality of feeling towards his orderly, nor could he leave the man alone. In spite of himself, he watched him, gave him sharp orders. The words never pierced to his intelligence. He made himself protectively impervious to the feelings of his master, He had a scar on his left thumb, a deep seam going across the knuckle. The officer had long suffered from it and wanted to do something to it. Still it was there, ugly and brutal on the young brown hand. At last the captain's reserve gave way. One day, as the orderly was smoothing out the tablecloth, the officer pinned down his thumb with a pencil, asking, How did you come by that? The young man winced and drew back at attention. A wood axe, Herr Hauptmann, he answered. The officer waited for further explanation. None came. The orderly went about his duties. The elder man was sullenly angry. His servant avoided him. And the next day, he had to use all his willpower to avoid seeing the scarred thumb. He wanted to get hold of it and... A hot flame ran in his blood... He knew his servant would soon be free and would be glad. As yet, he could not rest when the soldier was away, and when he was present, he glared at him with tormented eyes. He hated those fine, black brows over the unmeaning, dark eyes. He was infuriated by the free movement of which no military discipline could make stiff. 
and he became harsh and cruelly bullying, using contempt and satire. The young soldier only grew more mute and expressionless. What cattle were you bred by that you can't keep straight eyes? Look me in the eyes when I speak to you. And the soldier turned his dark eyes to the other's face, but there was no sight in them. He stared, holding back his sight, perceiving the blue of his master's eyes, but receiving no look from them. And the elder man went pale, and his reddish eyebrows twitched. He gave his order. Once he flung a heavy military glove into the young soldier's face. Then he had the satisfaction of seeing the black eyes flare up into his own, like a blaze when straw is thrown on a fire. And he had laughed with a little tremor and a sneer. But there were only two months more. The youth instinctively tried to keep himself intact. He tried to serve the officer as if the latter were an abstract authority and not a man. All his instinct was to avoid personal contact, even definite hate. But in spite of himself, the hate grew, responsive to the officer's passion. However, he put it in the background. When he had left the army, he could dare acknowledge it. By nature, he was active and had many friends. He thought what amazing good fellows they were. But without knowing it, he was alone. Now this solitariness was intensified. It would carry him through his term but the officer seemed to be going irritably insane, and the youth was deeply frightened. The soldier had a sweetheart, a girl from the mountains, independent and primitive. The two walked together rather silently. He went with her, not to talk, but to have his arm round her and for the physical contact. This eased him, made it easier for him to ignore the captain, for he could not rest with her held fast against his chest. And she, in some unspoken fashion, was there for him. They loved each other. The captain perceived it and was mad with irritation. He kept the young man engaged all the evenings long and took pleasure in the dark look that came on his face. Occasionally, the eyes of the two men met, those of the younger, sullen and dark, doggedly unalterable, those of the elder, sneering with restless contempt. The officer tried hard not to admit the passion that had got hold of him. 
He would not know that his feeling for the orderly was anything but that of a man incensed by his stupid, perverse servant. So, keeping quite justified and conventional in his consciousness, he let the other things run. His nerves, however, were suffering. At last, he slung the end of a belt into his servant's face. When he saw the youth start back, the pain tears in his eyes and the blood on his mouth, he had felt at once a thrill of deep pleasure and of shame. But this, he acknowledged to himself, was a thing he had never done before. The fellow was too exasperating. His own nerves must be going to pieces. He went away for some days with a woman. It was a mockery of pleasure. He simply did not want the woman. But he stayed on for his time. At the end of it, he came back in an agony of irritation, torment, and misery. He rode all the evening, then came straight in to supper. His orderly was out. The officer sat with his long, fine hands lying on the table, perfectly still, and all his blood seemed to be corroding. At last his servant entered. He watched the strong, easy young figure, the fine eyebrows, the thick black hair. In a week's time, the youth had got back his old well-being. The hands of the officer twitch and seemed to be full of mad flame. The young man stood at attention, unmoving shut off. The meal went in silence, but the orderly seemed eager. He made a clatter with the dishes. Are you in a hurry? asked the officer, watching the intent, warm face of his servant. The other did not reply. Will you answer my question, said the captain. Yes, sir, replied the orderly, standing with his pile of deep army plates. The captain waited, looking at him, then asked again, Are you in a hurry? Yes, sir, came the answer that sent a flash through the listener. For what? I was going out, sir. I want you this evening. There was a moment's hesitation. The officer had a curious stiffness of countenance. Yes, sir, replied the servant in his throat. I want you tomorrow evening also. In fact, you may consider your evenings occupied unless I give you leave. The mouth with the young mustache set close. 
Yes, sir, answered the orderly, loosening his lips for a moment. He again turned to the door. And why have you a piece of pencil in your ear? The orderly hesitated, then continued on his way without answering. He set the plates in a pile outside the door, took the stump of pencil from his ear, and put it in his pocket. He had been copying a verse for his sweetheart's birthday card. He returned to finish clearing the table. The officer's eyes were dancing. He had a little, eager smile. Why have you a piece of pencil in your ear? He asked. The orderly took his hands full of dishes. His master was standing near the great green stove, a little smile on his face, his chin thrust forward. When the young soldier saw him, his heart suddenly ran hot. He felt blind. Instead of answering, he turned dazily, dazedly to the door. As he was crouching to set down the dishes, he was pitched forward by a kick from behind. The pots went in a stream down the stairs. He clung to the pillar of the banisters. And as he was rising, he was kicked heavily again and again so that he clung sickly to the post for some moments. His master had gone swiftly into the room and closed the door. The maidservant downstairs looked up the staircase and made a mocking face at the crockery disaster. Shuna, he said. The soldier was a little slower in coming to attention. Yes, sir. The youth stood before him with pathetic young mustache and fine eyebrows very distinct on his forehead of dark marble. I asked you a question. Yes, sir. The officer's tone bit like acid. Why had you a pencil in your ear? Again, the servant's heart ran hot, and he could not breathe. With dark, strained eyes, he looked at the officer as if fascinated, and he stood there sturdily planted, unconscious. The withering smile came into... I... I forgot it, sir, panted the soldier his dark eyes fixed on the other man's dancing blue ones. What was it doing there? He saw the young man's breast heaving as he made an effort for words. I had been writing. Writing what? Again the soldier looked up and down. The officer could hear him panting. The smile came into the blue eyes. The soldier worked his dry throat, but he could not speak. 
Suddenly, the smile lit like a flame on the officer's face, and a kick came heavily against the orderly's thigh. The youth moved a pace sideways. His face went dead, with two black, staring eyes. Well, said the officer. The orderly's mouth had gone dry, and his tongue rubbed in it as on dry brown paper. He worked his throat. The officer raised his foot. The servant went stiff. Some poetry, sir, came the crackling, unrecognizable sound of his voice. Poetry? What poetry? asked the captain with a sickly smile. Again, there was the working in the throat. The captain's heart had suddenly gone down heavily, and he stood sick and tired. For my girl, sir, he heard the dry, inhuman sound. Oh, he said, turning away. Clear the table. Click went the soldier's throat. Then again, click, and then the half-articulate, Yes, sir. The young soldier was gone, looking old and walking heavily. The officer, left alone, held himself rigid to prevent himself from thinking. His instinct warned him that he must not think. Deep inside him was the intense gratification of his passion, still working powerfully. Then there was a counteraction, a horrible breaking down of something inside him, a whole agony of reaction. He stood there for an hour, motionless, a chaos of sensations, but rigid with a will to keep blank his consciousness, to prevent his mind grasping. And, he's and he held himself so until the worst of the stress had passed, when he began to drink, drank himself into an intoxication, till he slept obliterated. When he woke in the morning, he was shaken to the base of his nature, but he had fought off the realization of what he had done. He had prevented his mind from taking it in, had suppressed it along with his instincts, and the conscious man had nothing to do with it. He felt only as after a bout of intoxication, weak, but the affair itself all dim and not recovered. Of the drunkenness of his passion, he successfully refused remembrance, and when his orderly appeared with coffee, the officer assumed the same still, the same self he had had the morning before. He refused the event of his past night, denying it had ever been and was successful in his denial. He had not done any such thing, not he himself. 
Whatever there might be lay at the door of a stupid, insubordinate servant. The orderly had gone about in a stupor all the evening. He drank some beer because he was parched, but not much. The alcohol made his feeling come back, and he could not bear it. He was dulled, as if nine-tenths of the ordinary man in him were inert. He crawled about disfigured. Still, when he thought of the kicks, he went sick. And when he thought of the threat of more kicking in the room afterwards, his heart went hot and faint, and he panted, remembering the one that had come. He had been forced to say, for my girl. He was much too done even to want to cry. His mouth hung slightly open like an idiot's. He felt vacant and wasted. So he wandered at his work, painfully and very slowly and clumsily, fumbling blindly with the brushes and finding it difficult. When he sat down, to summon the energy to move again. His limbs, his jaw, were slack and nerveless. But he was very tired. He got to bed at last and slept inert, relaxed, in a sleep that was rather stupor than slumber. A dead night of stupefaction shot through the gleams of anguish. In the morning were the maneuvers, but he woke even before the bugle sounded. The painful ache in his chest, the dryness of his throat, the awful steady feeling of misery made his eyes come awake and dreary at once. He knew, without thinking, what had happened. And he knew that the day had come again when he must go on with his round. The last bit of darkness was being pushed out of the room. He would have to move his inert body and go on. He was so young and had known so little trouble that he was bewildered. He only wished it would stay night so that he could lie still covered up by the darkness and yet nothing would prevent the day from coming. Nothing would save him from having to get up and saddle the captain's horse and make the captain's coffee. It was there, inevitable. And then, he thought, it was impossible. Yet they would not leave him free. He must go and take the coffee to the captain. He was too stunned to understand it. He only knew it was inevitable. Inevitable, however long he lay inert. At last, after heaving at himself, for he seemed to be a mass of inertia, he got up. But he had to force every one of his movements from behind with his will he felt lost and dazed and helpless. 
Then he clutched hold of the bed. The pain was so keen. And looking at his thighs, he saw the darker bruises on his swarthy flesh, and he knew that if he pressed one of his fingers on one of the bruises, he should faint. But he did not want to faint. He did not want anybody to know. No one should ever know. It was between him and the captain. There were only two people in the world now, himself and the captain. Slowly, economically, he got dressed and forced himself to walk. Everything was obscure except just what he had his hands on. But he managed to get through his work. The very pain revived his dull senses. The worst remained yet. He took the tray and went up to the captain's room. The officer, pale and heavy, sat at the table. The orderly, as he saluted, felt himself put out of existence. He stood still for a moment, submitting to his own nullification. Then he gathered himself, seemed to regain himself, and then the captain began to grow vague, unreal, and the younger soldier's heart beat up. He clung to this situation, that the captain did not exist, so that he himself might live. But when he saw his officer's hand tremble as he took the coffee, he felt everything falling shattered, and he went away feeling as if he himself were coming to pieces, disintegrated. And when the captain was there on horseback, giving orders, while he himself stood with rifle and knapsack, sick with pain, he felt as if he must shut his eyes, as if he must shut his eyes on everything. It was only the long agony of marching with a parched throat that filled him with one single sleep-heavy intention to save himself. Two. He was getting used even to his parched throat, that the snowy peaks were radiant among the sky, that the whitey-green glacier river twisted through its pale shoals in the valley below, seemed almost supernatural. But he was going mad with fever and thirst. He plodded on uncomplaining. He did not want to speak, not to anybody. There were two gulls, like flakes of water and snow, over the river. The scent of green rye soaked in sunshine came like a sickness, and the march continued monotonously, almost like a bad sleep. The captain was firmer and prouder with life, he himself was empty as a shadow. Again the flash went through him, dazing him out. But his heart ran a little firmer 
The company turned up. The, the captain sat on horseback, watching. He needed to see his orderly. His helmet threw a dark shadow over his slight, fierce eyes, but his mustache and mouth and chin were distinct in the sunshine. The orderly must move under the presence of the figure of the horseman. As if all the other things were there and had form, but he himself was only a consciousness, a gap that could think and perceive. The soldiers were tramping silently up the glaring hillside. Gradually, his head began to revolve, slowly, rhythmically. Sometimes it was dark before his eyes, as if he saw this world through a smoked glass, frail shadows and unreal. It gave him a pain in his head to walk. The air was too scented. It gave no breath. All the lush green stuff seemed to be issuing its sap till the air was deathly, sickly with the smell of greenness. There was the perfume of clover, like pure honey and bees. Then there grew a faint, acrid tang. They were near the beaches, and then a queer, clattering noise, and a suffocating, hideous smell. They were passing a flock of sheep, a shepherd in a black smock, holding his crook. Why should the sheep huddle together under this fierce sun? He felt that the shepherd would not see him, though he could see the shepherd. At last there was the halt. They stacked rifles in a conical stack, put down their kit in a scattered circle around it, and dispersed a little, sitting on a small knoll high on the hillside. The chatter began. The soldiers were steaming with heat, but were lively. He sat still, seeing the blue mountains rising upon the land, 20 kilometers away, there was a blue fold in the ranges, then out of that, at the foot, the broad, pale bed of the river, stretches of whitey green water between pinkish gray shoals among the dark pine woods. There it was, spread out a long way off, and it seemed to come downhill, the river. There was a raft being steered a mile away. It was a strange country. Nearer, a red-roofed, broad farm with white base and square dots of windows crouched beside the wall of beech foliage on the wood's edge. There were long strips of rye and clover and pale green corn. And just at his feet... Below the knoll was a darkish bog where globe flowers stood breathless still on their slim stalks. And some of the pale gold bubbles were burst and a broken fragment hung in the air. 
he thought he was going to sleep. Suddenly, something moved into this colored mirage before his eyes. The captain, a small, light blue and scarlet figure, was trotting evenly between the strips of corn along the level brow of the hill, and the man making flag signals was coming on. Proud and sure moved the horseman's figure, the quick, bright thing in which was concentrated all the light of this morning, for which the rest lay a fragile, shining shadow. Submissive, apathetic, the young soldier sat and stared. But as the horse slowed to a walk, coming up the last steep path, the great flash flared over the body and soul of the orderly. He sat waiting. The back of his head felt as if it were weighted with a heavy piece of fire. He did not want to eat. His hands trembled slightly as he moved them. Meanwhile, the officer on horseback was approaching slowly and proudly. The tension grew in the orderly's soul. Then again, seeing the captain ease himself on the saddle, the flash blazed through him. The captain looked at the patch of light blue and scarlet and dark heads scattered closely on the hillside. It pleased him. The command pleased him. The flame leapt into the young soldier's throat as he heard the command, and he rose blindly, stifled. He saluted, standing below the officer. He did not look up. But there was the flicker in the captain's voice. Go to the inn and fetch me. The officer gave his commands. Quick, he added. At the last word, the heart of the servant leapt with a flash, and he felt the strength come over his body. But he turned in mechanical obedience and set off at a heavy run downhill, looking almost like a bear, his trousers bagging over his military boots. And the officer watched this blind, plunging run all the way. But it was only the outside of the orderly's body that was obeying so humbly and mechanically. Inside had gradually accumulated a core into which all the energy of that young life was compact and concentrated. He executed his commission and plodded quickly back uphill. There was a pain in his head as he walked that made him twist his features unknowingly. But hard there in the center of his chest was himself, himself, firm and not to be plucked to pieces. The captain had gone up into the wood. The orderly plodded through the hot, 
powerfully smelling zone of that company's atmosphere. He had a curious mass of energy inside him now. The captain was less real than himself. He approached the green entrance to the wood. There, in the half-shade, he saw the horse standing, the sunshine and the flickering shadow of leaves dancing over his brown body. There was a clearing where timber had lately been felled. Here, in the gold-green the orderly stood on the edge of the bright clearing where great trunks of trees, stripped and glistening, lay stretched like naked, brown-skinned bodies. Chips of wood littered the trampled floor like splashed light, and the bases of the felled trees stood here and there with their raw, level tops. Beyond was the brilliant, sunlit green of a beach. Then I will ride forward, the orderly heard his captain say. The lieutenant saluted and strode away. He himself went forward. Oh, the captain watched the rather heavy figure of the young soldier stumble forward and his veins, too, ran hot. This was, this was to be man-to-man -man between them. He yielded before the solid, stumbling figure with bent head. The orderly stooped and put the food on a level sawn tree base. The captain watched the glistening, sun-inflamed, naked hands. He wanted to speak to the young soldier, but could not. The servant propped a bottle against his thigh, pressed open the cork, and poured out the beer into the mug. He kept his head bent. The captain accepted the mug. Hot, he said, as if amiably. The flame spread out of the orderly's heart, nearly suffocating him. Yes, sir, he replied between shut teeth. And he heard the sound of the captain's drinking, and he clenched his fists. Such a strong torment came into his wrists. Then came the faint clang of the closing pot lid. He looked up. The captain was watching him. He glanced swiftly away. Then he saw the officer stoop and take a piece of bread from the tree base. Again the flash of flame went through the young soldier, seeing the stiff body stoop beneath him, and his hands jerked. He looked away. He could feel the officer was nervous. The bread fell as it was being broken. The officer ate the other piece. The two men stood tense and still, the master laboriously chewing his bread, the servant staring with averted face, his fist clenched.
Then the young soldier started. The officer had pressed open the lid of the mug again. The orderly watched the leg of the mud, mug and the white hand that clenched the handle as if he were fascinated. It was raised. The young, the youth followed it with his eyes. And then he saw the thin, strong throat of the elder man moving up and down as he drank, the strong jaw working. And the instinct which had been jerking at the young man's wrists suddenly jerked free. He jumped, feeling as if he were rent in two by a strong flame. The spur of the officer caught in a tree root. He went down backwards with a crash, the middle of his back thudding sickeningly against a sharp-edged tree base, the pot flying away. And in a second, the orderly, with serious, earnest young face and underlip between his teeth, had got his knee in the officer's chest and was pressing the chin backward over the farther edge of the tree stump, pressing with all his heart behind in a passion of relief, the tension of his wrists exquisite with relief. And with the base of his palms, he shoved at the chin with all his might. And it was pleasant, too, to have that chin, that hard jaw, already slightly rough with beard in his hands. He did not relax one hair's breadth, but all the force of all his blood exulting in his thrust, he shoved back the head of the other man till there was little cluck and a crunching sensation. Then he felt as if his head went to vapor. Heavy convulsions shook the body of the officer, frightening and horrifying the young soldier. Yet it pleased him, too, to repress them. It pleased him to keep his hands pressing back the chin, to feel the chest of the other man yield in his expiration to the weight of his strong young knees, to feel the hard twitchings of the prostrate body jerking his whole frame, which was pressed down on it. But it went still. He could look into the nostrils of the other man, the eyes he could scarcely see. How curiously the mouth was pushed out, exaggerating the full lips, and the mustache bristling up from them. Then, with a start, he noticed the nostrils gradually filled with blood. The red brimmed, hesitated, ran over, and went in a thin trickle down the face to the eyes. It shocked and distressed him. Slowly, he got up. The body twitched and sprawled there, inert. 
He stood and looked at it in silence. It was a pity it was broken. It represented more than the thing which had kicked and bullied him. He was afraid to look at the eyes. They were hideous now, only the whites showing and the blood running to them. The face of the orderly was drawn with horror at the sight. Well, it was so. In his heart, he was satisfied. He had hated the face of the captain. It was extinguished now. There was a heavy relief in the orderly's soul. That was as it should be. But he could not bear to see the long military body lying broken over the tree base, the fine fingers crisped. He wanted to hide it away. Quickly, busily, he gathered it up and pushed it under the felled tree trunks, which rested their beautiful, smooth length either end on logs. The face was horrible with blood. He covered it with the helmet. Then he pushed the limbs straight and decent and brushed the dead leaves off the fine cloth of the uniform. So it lay quite still in the shadow under there. A little strip of sunshine ran along the breast from the chink between the logs. The orderly sat by it for a few moments. Here his own life also ended. Then, through his days, he heard the lieutenant in a loud voice explaining to the men outside the wood that they were to suppose the bridge on the river below was held by the enemy. Now they were to march to the attack in such and such a manner. Lieutenant had no gift of expression. The orderly, listening from habit, got muddled. And when the lieutenant began it all again, he ceased to hear. He knew he must go. He stood up. It surprised him that the leaves were glittering in the sun and the chips of wood reflecting white from the ground. For him, a change had come over the world, but for the rest it had not. All seemed the same, only he had left it, and he could not go back. It was his duty to return with the beer pot and the bottle. He could not. He had left all that. The lieutenant was still hoarsely explaining. He must go or they would overtake him. He could not bear contact with anyone now. He drew his fingers over his eyes, trying to find out where he was. Then he turned away. He saw the horse standing in the path. He went up to it and mounted. 
It hurt him to sit in the saddle. The pain of keeping his seat occupied him as they cantered through the wood. He would not have minded anything, but he could not get away from the sense of being divided from the others. The path led out of the trees. On the edge of the wood, he pulled up and stood watching. There in the spacious sunshine of the valley, soldiers were moving in a little swarm. Every now and then, a man harrowing on a strip of fallow shouted to his oxen at the turn. The village and the white-towered church was small in the sunshine, and he no longer belonged to it. He sat there, beyond, like a man outside in the dark. He had gone out from everyday life into the unknown, and he could not, he did not want to go back. Turning from the sun-blazing valley, he rode deep into the wood. Tree trunks, like people standing gray and still, took no notice as he went. A doe, herself a moving bit of sunshine and shadow, went running through the flecked shade. There were bright green rents in the foliage. Then it was all pine wood, dark and cool. And he was sick with pain. He had an intolerable great pulse in his head. And he was sick. He had never been ill in his life. He felt lost, quite dazed with all this. Trying to get down from the when he opened his eyes again, he started, seeing something creeping swiftly up a tree trunk. It was a little bird, and the bird was whistling overhead. Tap, tap, tap. It was the small, quick bird wrapping the tree trunk with its beak, as if its head were a little round hammer. He watched it curiously. It shifted sharply in its creeping fashion. Then, like a mouse, it slid down the bare trunk. Its swift creeping sent a flash of revulsion through him. He raised his head. It felt a great weight. Then, the little bird ran out of the shadow across a still patch of sunshine its little head bobbing swiftly, its white legs twink running here and there among the beech mast. He lay down again, exhausted, and his consciousness lapsed. He had a horror of the little creeping birds. All his blood seemed to be darting and creeping in his head and yet he could not move. He came to with a further ache of exhaustion. There was the pain in his head and the horrible sickness and his inability to move. He had never been ill in his life. 
He did not know where he was or what he was. Probably he had got sunstroke. Or what else? He had silenced the captain forever, some time ago. Oh, a long time ago. There had been blood on his face, and his eyes had turned upwards. It was all right, somehow. It was peace. But now he had got beyond himself. He had never been here before. Was it life or not life? He was by himself. They were in a big, bright place, those others, and he was outside. The town, all the country, a big, bright place of light, and he was outside, here, in the darkened, open beyond, where each thing existed alone. But they would all have to come out there sometime, those others, little and left behind him, they all were. There had been farther, there had been father and mother and sweetheart. What did they all matter? This was the open land. He sat up. Something scuffled. It was a little brown squirrel running in a lovely, undulating bounds over the floor, its red tail completing the undulation of its body. And then, as it sat up, furling and unfurling, he watched it, pleased. It ran on again, friskily, enjoying itself. It flew wildly at another squirrel, and they were chasing each other and making little scolding, chattering noises. Its little, keen face staring at him halfway up the tree trunk, its little ears pricked up, its clawy little hands click. He started from it in panic. Struggling to his feet, he lurched away. He went on walking, walking. His brain felt hot and inflamed for want of water. He stumbled on. Then he did not know anything. He went unconscious as he walked. Yet he stumbled on, his mouth open. When, to his dumb wonder, he opened his eyes on the world again, he no longer tried to remember what it was. There was thick golden light behind golden green glitterings, and tall gray-purple shafts, and darkness further off, surrounding him, growing deeper, he was conscious of a sense of arrival. He was amid the reality on the real, dark bottom. But there was the thirst burning in his brain. He felt lighter, not so heavy. He supposed it was newness. The air was muttering with thunder. He thought he was walking wonderfully swiftly and was coming straight to relief. 
or was it to water? Suddenly he stood still with fear. There was a tremendous flare of gold, immense, just a few dark trunks like bars between him and it. All the young level wheat was burnished gold and glaring on its silky green. A woman, full-skirted, a black cloth on her head for headdress, was passing like a block of shadow through the glistening green corn into the full glare. There was a farm, too, pale blue in shadow, and the timber black, and there was a church spire nearly fused away in the gold. The woman moved on, away from him. He had no language with which to speak to her. She was the bright, solid unreality. She would make a noise of words that would confuse him, and her eyes would look at him without seeing him. She was crossing there to the other side. He stood against a tree. When at last he turned, looking down the long, bare grove whose flat bed was already filling dark, he saw the mountains in a wonder light, not far away and radiant. Behind the soft gray ridge of the nearest range, the further mountains stood golden and pale gray, the snow all radiant like pure, soft gold. So still, gleaming in the sky, fashioned pure out of the ore of the sky, they shone in their silence. He stood and looked at them, his face illuminated, and like the golden, lustrous gleaming of the snow, he felt his own thirst bright in him. He stood and gazed, leaning against a tree, and then everything slid away into space. During the night, the lightning fluttered perpetually, making the whole sky white. He must have walked again. The world hung livid round him for moments, fields in a level sheen of gray-green light, trees in dark bulk, and the range of clouds black across a white sky. Then the darkness fell like a shutter, and the night was whole. A faint flutter of a half-revealed world that could not quite leap out of the darkness. Then there again stood a sweep of pallor for the land, dark shapes looming, a range of clouds hanging overhead. The world was a ghostly shadow, thrown for a moment upon the pure darkness, which returned ever whole and complete. And the mere delirium of sickness and fever went on inside him, his brain opening and shutting like the night. Then sometimes convulsions of terror from something with great eyes that stared round a tree 
within the long agony of the march and the sun decomposing his blood, then the pang of hate for the captain. He lay still in a kind of dream of anguish. His thirst seemed to have separated itself from him and to stand apart a single demand. Then the pain he felt was another single self. Then there was the clog of his body, another separate thing. He was divided among all kinds of separate beings. There was some strange, agonized connection between them, but they were drawing further apart. Then they would all split. The sun, drilling down on him, was drilling through the bond. They would all fall, fall through the everlasting lapse of space. Then again, his consciousness reasserted itself. He roused on to his elbow and stared at the gleaming mountains. They were ranked, all still and wonderful between earth and heaven. He stared till his eyes went black and the mountains, as they stood in their beauty, so clean and cool, seemed to have it, that which was lost in him. Four. When the soldiers found him, three hours later, he was lying with his face over his arm, his black hair giving off heat under the sun. But he was still alive. Seeing the open, black mouth, the young soldiers dropped him in horror. He died in the hospital at night, without having seen again. The doctors saw the bruises on his legs behind and were silent. The bodies of the two men lay together side by side in the mortuary, the one white and slender but laid rigidly at rest, the other looking as if every moment it must rouse into life again so young and unused from a slumber. Sleep.